For thousands of years, humans have had a fascination with their appearance. One day you realize you're not going to be 21 forever, yet you always want to look your best. My skin, my eyes. The desire to be attractive to others is fundamental to our human existence. 24-hour mascara that conditions to... From Maybelline. Yardley, how to make the most of what you have. In our quest to prolong our youth and vitality, it's little wonder that the beauty industry has an estimated total market valuation of 96 trillion US dollars and annual sales of 511 billion in 2021. Given the environmental impact of this vast industry, with its heavy use of carbon-dense single-use plastics, lavish packaging, and endless consumption of natural resources and planet-damaging chemicals, it's clear that this mega-industry needs to change, and change rapidly. Could there be a way to break the cycle that satisfies our thirst for the fountain of youth with long-term environmentalism at its core? Welcome to Racing Green, the podcast that explores the ideas, innovations, and influences making waves in the journey towards a sustainable future for our planet. In each episode, we investigate the new challenges, ingenious solutions, and the undiscovered opportunities that lie at the heart of our rapidly changing world. We aim to accelerate a new era founded on optimism and impactful collective responsibility. Today, we talk with Lorraine Dalmaya, a chartered environmentalist and CEO of Formula Botanica, a sustainable beauty education platform aiming to empower the next generation of beauty leaders in sustainable beauty formulation and championing the need of a cyclical cosmetic industry. Welcome, Lorraine. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you could give us some background on yourself. Yes, uh, of course. So I'm a biologist, I'm a chartered environmentalist, and I run Formula Botanica. We are the online organic cosmetic formulation school. So we teach people how to formulate because formulation is a skill that absolutely everyone can learn. It's been around for millennia, despite the fact that we've been told by the beauty industry for the last 150 years that it's something only chemists and scientists can do. It is, in fact, a skill that everyone can reclaim. And I, with my team of uh, 40 staff, we are on a mission to teach the world to formulate. So we now have um, about 15,000 students in 180 countries worldwide. We are really teaching across the globe. And we have spawned a whole generation of formulators who are out there either formulating for themselves or starting indie beauty brands. So I've been doing this for almost a decade now. I love it. I love teaching formulation to people, but I also love very much the, the digital component of, of really spreading the message worldwide. We have a fantastic platform. We reach about a million people a month. And um, yeah, I suppose that's, that's me in a nutshell. Green beauty, sustainability in beauty. How important is it? Well, that's a big question to start with. <laughs> I would say it's, it's extremely important. I mean, I should add the beauty industry is now a half a trillion dollar global industry. So it is absolutely vast. And I would say, um, and I feel very well positioned to say this as a chartered environmentalist, that it is also one of the world's most unsustainable industries. It's growing phenomenally, has grown phenomenally over the last decades as we start to consume more and more beauty products. The average woman has 16 beauty products on her bathroom shelf, for instance. 
We, uh, as an industry, produce, I think it's about 70 billion units of plastic packaging per year, most of which, of course, ends up in landfill or the oceans. So green beauty or sustainable beauty is incredibly important. It is one of the most important things that the beauty industry as a whole can embrace. They have been very slow to embrace it, I will say. I think the pandemic really kickstarted that conversation for the beauty industry. There are some good signals coming out of the industry now, but it has a long, long way to go. So I would say it is incredibly important. Fantastic. Well, how do you define green beauty or sustainable beauty? Um, I suppose it's being able to create cosmetics now that will not impact future generations or deplete their resources to the extent that they cannot enjoy consumption of beauty products in the way that we do as well. There isn't really a clear definition of sustainable or green beauty out there. Some people might say that the two are also different, and this is a whole separate debate for maybe a whole separate podcast. There's also natural beauty and organic beauty and vegan beauty and ethical beauty. I mean, you can come up with all sorts of different definitions. But I think ultimately it's about us consuming beauty products at a sustainable level so that we effectively leave the earth in a way that it should be for future generations as well. And that's very hard to do when you are making a consumer product that is effectively designed to be put on your skin and then the remainder to be disposed of. And this is where I think the concept of circular beauty is possibly even more important, where we start to look at the circularity of the beauty industry and make sure that we start to put resources in a loop. But as I said, there isn't a clear or formal definition of it. Different people look at it in different ways. I have to say that shoppers are confused by this concept because, of course, it hasn't been properly defined. Beauty brands are confused by it as well. And I watch people latch on to individual concepts such as biodegradability or veganism or cruelty-free beauty, which are all very important, but they don't make up the whole by themselves. So it's, it's a big, complex topic that I don't think anyone really has a, a clear grasp on at the moment. You talked about circular beauty. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Absolutely. I mean, circularity is one of the most important topics that we as a beauty industry need to be having. I suppose it's based on four principles. First of all, it's this principle that we, we work with nature so that we're minimizing our use of natural resources so that what you put into the circle effectively can then just keep going. Um, and that is packaging, but it's also very much the ingredients. I will say that the sustainability conversation in the beauty industry has been predominantly focused on packaging. We do need to start to shift away from that a little bit and say it isn't just packaging. That is absolutely a very important component of it, but there is so much more to it because you have a whole life cycle assessment to do on your product with it in terms of its ingredients and its shipping and, and everything to do with that. And then it's about keeping those resources in use as much as possible. So you might be talking about upcycled ingredients or ingredient byproducts or water, energy, packaging, that sort of thing. And with cosmetics, we can keep a lot of those resources in use, for instance, packaging when they are reusable and refillable. Obviously, obviously, we can't keep the ingredients themselves in use because they are put on our skin, on our hair, which is why making a, a truly circular beauty product will always be challenging when it comes to the, the formulation itself, because the ingredients are generally either washed down the drain or absorbed by the skin or evaporated or, or sloughed off with dead skin cells or scraped into the bin, ultimately, where they'll decompose, hopefully. And then principle three, I suppose, is that we design out these waste externalities. So we start to really think about, you know, where are we causing a waste stream into the environment and where can we actually design that out? That might be avoiding the creation of packaging waste or, or minimizing waste associated with the extraction of natural ingredients by looking at 
which plants can yield a maximum output for the minimum environmental impact, for instance. Eco-design comes into it here. And then the final component is that we regenerate natural capital, where not only do we try and keep those natural resources in use as much as possible, but then we start to try and create a net environmental gain. I mean, it's a huge, huge topic, as you can tell. No one really is doing this properly yet. Some brands, some very forward-thinking brands are doing so, but they are very much in the minority, and I can probably count them on one hand, if I'm going to be honest. What's an example of how to generate a net environmental gain? It can be done in many different ways. I mean, you could be, uh, for instance, if you're harvesting a certain plant, then um, you might be looking at how that plant is grown. You might be working with the growers. And some of the, some of the forward-thinking brands are doing this. And you might be trying to actually regenerate biodiversity and, and undertake conservation projects with that particular project. Um, yeah, I mean, how long is a piece of string, really? I suppose there are lots of different things you can be doing. You could be trying to sequester carbon, for instance. Um, algae is, is a topic that is starting to come to the forefront in the discussion in the beauty industry, because not only can algae have an effect on the skin and can be used in formulations, but it can also sequester carbon. So perhaps that is a great example of where you can actually have potentially a net environmental gain whilst still creating a consumer product. So you talked about working with nature. Does science still have a role to play in this? Or is it about moving back to natural ingredients? Well, we're still making a formulation. So science always has a role to play. And and as a biologist, of course, I, I very much love and appreciate science. I do feel that the beauty industry has embedded this, this concept of you have to be a scientist to formulate it and they've brainwashed people a little bit with this because we've been formulation formulating for millennia. Um, as a as a human population, you know, we found 2,000-year-old face creams from ancient Roman times, which are not that chemically dissimilar to the ones we make today. Or the first formulation that we've that we've ever found, or archaeologists have ever found, written down, dates back 5,000 years for an Egyptian face cream. So there's very much this feeling of it has to be made in a lab, and you have to be a chemist, and you have to wear a white lab coat. But actually, that's just not true. But nonetheless, you are obviously using science to create formulations. I mean, if we take the example of a lotion or a cream, you know, that's effectively a blend of oil and water. You bind them together with the use of uh, an ingredient called an emulsifier, which uh, loves both oil and water and therefore blends it together to create this, this wonderful face cream or cream cleanser or eye cream, whatever it is that you're looking to make. So science is a big part of it. It's not, I, I would never say that you would reject science if you're making a natural product or if you're making a synthetic product. It just goes hand in hand with the skill of formulation, basically. So if I'm being a little bit of a cynic, would you say there's a lot of greenwashing in this industry? Or is there just not enough focus on sustainability at all? I would agree with you. I would say that the beauty industry is absolutely packed full of greenwashing. <laughs> I see it absolutely every day. Um, and yes, I, I too am quite cynical about some of the claims that are made. And that's where I think we as shoppers have a hard task ahead of us to really navigate what is right and what is wrong and what is true. And this is where, I mean, obviously I work with indie brands. I work with thousands and thousands of indie brands all around the world. In fact, if you've ever bought a natural beauty uh, brand, you have likely bought from a Formula Botanica graduate at some point. And the thing I love about those indie brands is that they put the founder at the heart of their story. 
and you have a real person to connect with there. And that can really help instill confidence in shoppers because they can actually put, sort of put a face to the name, really, which, of course, is very hard to do. Um, I was at an awards ceremony for the beauty industry on Monday night and, uh, you know, Estee Lauder was being recognized there. Various of their staff members were being recognized. And I thought, isn't it strange that you're working for an organization that is named after someone who has who passed away years ago? You, can't, you don't have that same sort of founder connection. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with you that there is an awful lot of greenwashing out there in the industry. And I think we definitely have our work cut out for us to, to cut through that. But I think the beauty industry has been doing this for a very long time because they've always been fairly liberal with their advertising and the messages and the claims that they've put out there. So I suppose this is just a, an extension of that. And that's where I think this, this indie and green beauty movement can hopefully start to cut through some of that noise. Thinking from a consumer's perspective, what are some of the ingredients or processes that a consumer needs to look out for or at least to consider when they're looking for the best beauty product you know, for the environment? I don't think there is a particular ingredient or process as such that you should look for. I mean, it really does depend on your own skin and hair needs. I think it's it's more about what works for you. And then it's about buying into a brand that can verify that the claims they're making are right and a brand that you can put trust in. That isn't always easy, particularly in this day and age when people inherently mistrust big corporations, which is again why I come back to that, that feeling of, you know, the indie sector has so much to offer to consumers. I would say the other thing to do if you really want to learn about, you know, what goes into your beauty products is to maybe dabble in formulation yourself. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't buy beauty products anymore, but it does mean that you start to empower yourself with the knowledge of what actually goes into my formulations. And once you realize how easy it is to make a balm or a lotion or a cleanser or a shampoo or a butter or, or anything that you want to put on your skin or hair, you'll start to understand a little bit more about what it is that you're buying. The one thing I would say is there is a tendency in the beauty industry to really go for the exotic. Um, Pre-COVID, I used to go to a lot of trade shows and I'm hopeful that they will happen again. And I would walk around them and they would always be advertising the latest and greatest exotic plants. Look at this botanical extract. It's packed full of antioxidants. It's the highest level of antioxidants we've ever seen in a plant. You know, that's the sort of messaging that you'd see. And I'd always stand there and have a good chuckle to myself because you hear the same message over and over again. And you don't always have to go for the, the big shiny object that's stood right in front of you. You can actually go back to basics. And what we see with our students at Formula Botanica is that they actually do really grasp those basics and start to work with very simple ingredients that are often local to them and use them at higher percentages. I'm talking about things like oils, butters, waxes, that sort of thing. And then, you know, you have created a very, very simple product, which can actually be even better for the skin. I think there is great simplicity, uh, great beauty in simplicity. And also, you know, if you potentially react to ingredients, it's very hard to know what you've reacted to. If you're standing there holding a product that contains 40, 50, 60 different um, ingredients in its formulation, so we tend to recommend that people just go simple. And actually, those simple formulations can be incredibly effective. So if I'm a consumer and I'm turning over the label on a product, are there any red flags that I should be looking out for? I would say um, the ingredient list is not going to help you in that respect. It's very easy to turn over a bottle, look at the ingredient list and think, ah, I don't know what I'm looking at. 
because of course we use um, we use a, a cosmetic language. It's called Inky, International Nomenclature of Cosmetic Ingredients. It's called, and it's world. It's used worldwide. So water is not called water; it's called aqua. Most of us can identify that, but once you start to move into botanical names, fairly long chemical um, names, it starts to become a little bit complex. And I don't think you can really tell from that list if a product is sustainable or not. But what you can do is look, for instance, at certification schemes. Um, and I know that isn't always easy for small brands, but it does help your consumer, your shopper, understand that you have met certain standards. I will say, I do think this is quite problematic, that the number of certain uh, number of certification schemes that are out there are just multiplying by the week. We um, A lot of them come to us at Formula Botanica and say, we want to promote our certification scheme to your students. And then we sat there going, oh my goodness, there's another one. <laughs> So as a shopper, what are you to do when you're just constantly faced with all these different badges and labels? But I think there are some certification schemes out there on the market that have longevity, that have brand recognition. And I think that for a shopper can really help you if you're looking at a product and you you say, okay, this one has the Cosmos or Soil Association label, or this one's vegan certified. And actually, there's I should give a shout out. There's a fantastic new company on the market called Provenance. And they're actually bringing together all of those certification standards and working with certain retailers so that they actually verify the thing that you've said, that you've claimed for your beauty product. And I think ultimately that's the way forward for shoppers because there are so many different types of ingredients. There are so many different types of formulations. There are so many different types of certification schemes that having one central thing that tells you this claim that this brand has made is true will ultimately give you more confidence than probably you trying to unpick it all for yourself. So what's the future of green beauty? What, what, what do you see happening? It's a fast-growing sector? It is. It is an incredibly fast-growing sector, as is indie beauty. I mean, we're seeing it with the investments being made in the sector as well. Our most successful graduates have raised uh, close to $10 million in investment funding and are being rolled out worldwide, which is incredible to watch. I personally think that the future of green beauty sits in circularity. And I honestly think that the beauty sector will look completely different 10 to 15 years from now. It has to, because when we're churning out that many consumer products and we're causing that much waste and we're encouraging that much consumption from from shoppers, that will not stand the test of time. It simply can't because we're just drowning in a sea of beauty products and plastic here. I think we will move to longer lasting, multi-purpose, multifunctional formulations a lot more. I think people will start to formulate for themselves a lot more. We've seen it at Formula Botanica. I mean, the growth that we've undergone in the last years has been unbelievable. And we're just on the cusp of it, really. We we are going to you know, take off and, and really soar in the coming decade. So I think all of those things combined will hopefully get to the stage also that shoppers start to buy more what they need rather than feeling that they have to buy all of these beauty products all the time to be good enough. And a lot of that comes back to the messaging that the beauty industry puts out. I don't particularly like a lot of the things that the mainstream industry tells people. I think we have a lot to unpick, but I honestly think that the beauty industry has to change because otherwise, as I said, we'll be drowning in a sea of plastic and beauty products, and that simply can't continue long term. Do you believe that the bigger players, without naming them here, you know, really are under pressure now from the indies, or are they just so giant that it's going to take years for the indies to be a real force? 
Well, I, I don't have any uh, statistics actually about what percentage indie beauty makes up, but I know it's growing significantly. And the thing that's been really interesting to watch over the last five years or so is the messaging changing from the beauty industry as a whole, the big players I'm talking about. I've watched quite a few big players not only buy up indie brands, because ultimately some of these big players aren't really beauty companies anymore. They're marketing companies. They just produce consumer goods and they buy other companies. And they're buying them because there is so much, uh, well, value in them and so much brand recognition in them. Um, But I also see them try and launch their own equivalent indie brands, which is very interesting to watch. You know, they use the same sort of messaging, the same sort of flat lays in the photography, the same website layout. And all of the big players have launched brands like this. And of course, some of them done very well, but the thing they're still missing is that human connection, which a lot of indie brands, be that in beauty or in any sector, in fact, can offer over the big multinationals. So yes, I do think they're keeping a much closer eye on them. I mean, the very fact that all of the the trade publications, all of the trade um, events now put indie front and center means that they have to pay attention to them because ultimately... Let's look back at the big players. You know, Estee Lauder was also an indie formulator, an indie brand founder 100 years ago. Um, The man who founded L'Oreal, yes, he was a pharmacist, but he spent the first four years of his career tinkering in his kitchen, trying to create the world's first hair dye. And he had so many explosions in the process that his neighbors kept calling the police on him, apparently. So it's very easy for us to look at the big players and think, you know, you're a big multinational, but they all started as indie brands as well at one point. And I think some of the big players have lost sight of that, but the majority of them are keeping a very close eye on what's happening. The one thing that it's very difficult to remove is packaging from our products. Are there any solutions there? Yes, absolutely. Refilling stations is one of the ways forward. And some brands are really starting to embrace this. I mean, the regulations and and sort of logistics around this are really in their infancy, but I can see that 10 years from now, we'll be taking our packaging to the refilling station to fill up on shampoo, for instance. Mm. And hopefully that will facilitate some local brands, you know, being able to do the same. Um, The other thing is, of course, we can ditch the packaging. Most of us buy beauty products because of the brand. I mean, that's what attracts most people to a lotion or a cream on a shelf. They look at it and they think, wow, look at the colors, look at the brand, look at the messaging. I like that. They're not always really thinking about what's actually in the tube or the the jar or the bottle. So I think um, we need to revisit how that's positioned as well. A lot of beauty products that you buy have outer packaging or maybe even three layers of packaging. Do we need that? No, we don't. And then furthermore, some beauty products don't need packaging at all. Think about shampoo bars, conditioner bars, lotion bars, shower bars, that sort of thing. And that sort of product, I think, will rise significantly in popularity uh, in the coming years. And I think the younger generations are really starting to embrace this, uh, along with the whole the climate crisis movement that goes with it, effectively. So, yes, things can change and they will change because they have to. Ultimately, you know, we only have so much space to fill on planet Earth. And if we fill it up with beauty packaging, then I don't think anyone's going to be particularly happy about it. If it's so easy to make your own formula, why aren't more people doing it? Because they don't know yet. And that's the, that's the real issue here. The beauty industry has been telling us for over 100 years that you have to be a chemist to do this. And I challenge absolutely everyone listening to this 
Next time you see a beauty uh, product advert on television or on YouTube or wherever it is you're watching, keep an eye open for how many people you see in white lab coats. Next time you go into a department store and you walk around the beauty counter, see how many white lab coats you spot. And that is very clever, very subtle marketing messaging that they've been using for a hundred years. The original beauty pioneer, Helena Rubenstein, she came up with the concept. Genius. I mean, from a marketing perspective, I can only applaud her and everyone has embraced this. So now you look at beauty brands and you think, oh, they're all in their white lab coats. I must therefore have to you know, be a chemist to do this too, because it's so clever what they do. And I will say a lot of the formulations made by the beauty brands are very clever, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it as well. Everyone can formulate. And I think honestly, everyone should formulate because it reclaims some of that power from the beauty industry and allows you to uh, well, really empower yourself and to create beauty products as and when you need them, rather than being caught in this this cycle of this everlasting cycle of you're not good enough, therefore you must buy my products. So I really like this idea of stepping out of that cycle and saying, I'm going to be a formulator and uh, I'm going to learn how to make my own lotions. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thanks so much, Lorraine, for joining us here at Racing Green. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to chat to you. That's all for this episode of Racing Green. Thanks for joining us. Racing Green is produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Chris Bristow, Georgina McGiven, in collaboration with the Camden Clean Air Initiative. It was recorded at Serendipity Studios, Camden, North London, with music and sound design by Chris Bristow. 